We're going to be in John chapter 2 today, verses 23 through 25. Question to start with today, what is the purpose of a sign? What is the purpose of a sign? If someone were just uh, coming to Mount Pleasant for the first time, and stopped at that old oil derrick on the side of 127. You're coming north. You see that? You know what I'm talking about? And that sign says, Welcome to Mount Pleasant. What if that person got out of their car, stood next to that sign, took pictures of the sign, talked to the sign, got back in their car, and drove away? Would that person be able to say that they visited and had a great time getting to know Mount Pleasant? If a new student drove into town and saw the brick sign on the corner of Mission and and Bluegrass for CMU and parked their car and went to the sign and and slept by the sign and read books by the sign and thought deep thoughts next to the sign, could they legitimately say that they had a great experience studying and receiving an education at Central Michigan University? If you came to 1802 East High Street... Today, and stood by our church sign, that's our address, by the way, and then went home, did you come and worship with the church today? Uh, What if I walked out of this auditorium right now, don't say amen, and preached this message to the sign? Okay, you probably think I was crazy. And would I have preached to the church this morning? The answer to all those questions, obviously, is No. Uh, Do you sleep next to signs that say Holiday Inn, or do you go inside? Uh, Do you drive to the signs on the highway for gas, and then hit the road again, or do you have to actually pull off, go to the station, and fill up your car with fuel before you're able to get off on the road again? What is the purpose of a sign? Is the sign the town, the university, the church, the hotel, the gas station, or does it simply point you to the town, the university, the church, the hotel, the gas station? Uh, Today we're going to be looking at a potentially unsettling passage in John 2, 23 to 25. It's it's a short passage that that packs a big punch. And in truth, this is a passage that really serves in the whole picture of the Gospel of John as a transitional piece, a transitional thought uh, between what we've already seen and then what's to come in the rest of the Gospel. So, rightly understanding these three verses well will help us greatly to understand things as we move forward, specifically in the next two, three chapters. And the main reason this passage is unsettling is because one of the things that we're going to learn is that there is a kind of belief that is unbelief. There is a way to believe that is not believing. There is a kind of faith that is not saving faith. And that ought to startle us. It ought to make us inspect our hearts to see what it is that we actually believe and what it is that God wants us to believe and to put our hope in. If this passage does prove to be unsettling for you as we continue in it, please realize how wonderful that is. If my faith was in the wrong thing or of a wrong nature and not what God was calling for, then I would certainly want to know. And God has gifted us with his written word and with the spirit to reveal what is in our hearts. And when Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, 
Jesus told him that it wasn't flesh and blood that had revealed this to him, but the Father who had let him see this truth. So may God give us eyes as we look into this passage to see whatever it is that we need to see today, whether that be our need of faith in Christ alone, or even as believers, true believers, to be reminded why we're here, why this is important, and what's important. God, in his goodness and grace, gives us this example today as a warning. It's a heads up. And for us, a right response would be to reevaluate our heart's desires. And if we see some wicked way in us, then we would cry out, Lord, cleanse me and repent. Uh, We ask the question, what do I value most? Is Jesus the prize of my heart, my greatest desire, my greatest longing? Is he the end goal of my life? Or... Is Jesus a means to an end for me? Is there something else that I want more that I think that I can only get through him? And what we need to remember, what we need to know is that miracles are good, but they are, as John calls them, signs. Miracles are good, but Jesus is better. And we could even say this, a life of ease Might seem good. Lots of money, nice cars, social activity, acceptance, perfect health, all that stuff is great, right? But Jesus is better than that, than any of it. Let's pray before we go into God's word together. Father, we thank you for the truths that we've sung this morning. We thank you, Lord, that... You have given us this time to gather together to look into your word and pray that you would help us to do so, Lord, with humble hearts, with soft hearts. Lord, give me a soft heart as I speak, that I would be learning under your word as well, uh, that we would have hearts, Lord, that desire to be conformed into the image of your Son. Lord, help us to see today and to believe today that Jesus is better than anything on the face of this earth that we would long for you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So John 2.23 says, Now when he, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, so this is still the time of the Passover, many believed in his name. I'm going to ask the question, what does it mean in his name? And by the way, before I go any further, there was one, probably the most important thing I should have told you during the announcements. Do you know what Yeshua means? The name Joshua, uh, Yah in the Hebrew is just short for Yahweh, and the Shua part saves. So Jesus' names mean Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. Who is Yahweh in the flesh? <laughs> so in the sense, his name is here. I am <laughs> right. It means Yahweh, God saves. But the phrase in his name. What does that mean? It would refer to uh, the person's reputation, or it could mean uh, an aspect of that authority, of the authority. So if an officer says, uh, stop in the name of the law, he's using that phrase in the name, right? Stop in the name of the law. He's referring to the authority that has been placed in him and over the offender by the law, by the law of the land. Uh, The apostles, remember, they were casting out demons in Jesus' name, meaning by his authority and not their own. The question here then is, what reputation 
if we're using it in that sense, or what authority were the people attributing to Jesus when they were believing, quote-unquote, in his name? And that, ba- that matters very much in this text, in this passage. And, praise the Lord, the answer's in the text. It says, they believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. When they saw the signs that he was doing. That's our window into what's happening here. And technically that would not be a bad thing if you think about it. We sang about that a little bit this morning. What were the signs meant to do? They were meant to point people to Jesus. So they see the signs happening and they think, I can't do that, nobody else can do that. This guy must be the Messiah. But then at that point, the signs become old and minuscule compared to what they pointed to. That's what the purpose of them is. That's what it was. But it says in verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. So on surface, we might think, That's, that stinks. What is he doing? They're believing in his name, but Jesus on his part does not entrust himself to them. And the, and the word in the Greek is the same for belief and entrust. It's the same word. Uh, they did a good job translating it. They're a lot smarter than I am. But you could also say it this way. They believed in his name, and Jesus didn't believe in their belief. They believed in his name, and Jesus didn't believe in them. He didn't believe. They believed, but in such a way that Jesus didn't believe in their belief. And why? The rest of verse 24 says, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness to teach him about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Why was it okay for Jesus to not believe in them? Because he knew their hearts. He knew what kind of believing they were believing, and he wasn't buying it. Now, in this short passage, there are two main important truths. And, of course, there'll be some subpoints along the way. Okay, But there are two main important truths that we have to learn and take away. Number one, Jesus knows everything. It's said in the passage, he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Remember that in all of these passages in John so far, there has been glory to behold in Jesus. John tells us these things so that we can see the glory. In chapter one, it says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Uh, This is where that glory is on display in this passage today. This is where we see it today. Jesus is gloriously, accurately portrayed here as the divine, omniscient Son of God. We even sang today about the Son of God, the Son of. That's just a terminology that means that he carries the nature of his Father. And so if the Father is divine, then what is the Son of God? He's divine. He is deity. He is God the Son. And so he carries that attribute of God, the divine omniscience. He knows all. He is all-knowing. The same that God possesses, God the Father. Jesus is God. Therefore, he is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows the very number of hairs on your head, all of you. And every time another hair falls out of my head, he knows it. 
And he knows it before I do, right? Especially because they seem to be falling out in the back anyway, so I can't see them. But this means that there are things that Jesus knows about your best friends, the things that Jesus knows about your spouse, uh, things that Jesus knows about your children that you don't know. That you don't know. Uh, People are people, and we know about people and how they work, but there's a difference between knowing about a person and knowing a person. Uh, In the age of social media, we would be tempted to think that we really know people well, but we don't. As it turns out, what people post on social media and what they actually do in their real lives, what actually happens, aren't always the same thing. Boom, right? What a, what a mind-blowing thing that would be. Uh, with all of the worship of celebrities in our culture and with all of their lives being videotaped and photographed and thrown on every kind of media imaginable that you could ever hope to consume, people sometimes get tricked into thinking or feeling like they actually know that person. And sometimes so much that they get a little creepy and need to be arrested, right? That happens in our culture. But as it turns out, what you see on the movie screen and what those people are really like in real life may not be the same thing. Would you agree that there is a difference between knowing about a person and knowing a person? There are things that Jesus knows about you. And there are things that Jesus knows about me that I'm blind to. That I don't know about myself. More than that, Jesus doesn't just know about you. Jesus knows you better than you do. And let's take that even farther. Jesus knows everything, everything about you. And Jesus knows you entirely. From your birth to your death into eternity, uh, from your external expressions, the words and actions that everybody else could see, to your deepest internal thoughts, feelings, and your motives. Jesus knows everything. And he knows everyone from all time, at all times. And he never needs a Motrin. It's never too much for him. You ever think about that before? I think about that often when we pray. How many churches across even just the eastern time zone are praying right about now? And Jesus hears every prayer, understands it completely, understands the motive behind the words that are being prayed perfectly, and never gets confused, never mixes up the signals, Never thinks that person prayed this and this person prayed that. Perfect. And that's just prayer. He knows everything else, too, of all time. In his eternality, he knows from Adam and Eve to the last human beings that will ever be born, exist on into eternity future. And none of it overcomes him. He's never overwhelmed. He doesn't have to take a vacation. That's God. This is the glory of Jesus on display here. That's Jesus. That's who he is. And here are some other truths, though, uh, that we must consider along with the omniscience of Christ. Number one, this is the bad news first, but it's not, okay? He is our righteous judge. Jesus knows everything, and he is our righteous judge. 
Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 say this. This is about us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Isaiah 53, 6 says this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What does all mean in that passage? All we like sheep. That's every one of us, isn't it? That's not somebody else he's talking about. But Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. How offensive, we might say. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. God knows everything, and there is no way to avoid his knowledge in any area at any point in time. Whether you want him to or not, God knows. And whether you believe in him or not, God knows everything. And this would sound like bad news for anyone who rejects Christ, and in fact it would be. But our God is more than an omniscient righteous judge. He is also our sinless, all-sufficient substitute and Savior. He was able to provide everything we needed to save us from our sin. He didn't die on the cross ignorantly, hoping to have accomplished enough. Does that make sense? When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't like God was saying, well, I hope this covers it. I'm not sure how this is going to go down the road here, but maybe this will do the trick. No, God in his omniscience, Jesus in his omniscience, knows exactly what is needed. He knows exactly what is needed. He suffered all the wrath of God for all of our sin perfectly. Now, we talked earlier about Jeremiah 17, Isaiah 53, Romans 3. Here's what those chapters also say. Romans 3 also says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means the wrath of God was totally, completely satisfied. I'm glad God knows everything. Because we can also then have complete confidence that all of his wrath was entirely satisfied by Christ on the cross. There's nothing that was missed. And this is to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You can't justify somebody you don't know what you're justifying. Isaiah 53 also says this, Surely he has borne our griefs. All we like sheep have gone astray, but surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And this healing is this. 
Okay, this isn't a broken arm made well. This is we were dead in our trespasses and sins and he made us alive. A new creation in Christ. And then Jeremiah 17 also says this, a glorious throne is set on high from the beginning. It's the place of our sanctuary, our peace, our rest, our sanctuary. And it says, O Lord, and this is the name of God, Yahweh, the hope of Israel. Who's the hope of Israel? Jesus. Jesus himself is our sanctuary. Think about this. In our sin, we are covered by the blood, right? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Jesus is our sanctuary, our place of rest. That is why we can have justification and forgiveness of sins. Jesus knows everything, and when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Jesus paid it all, so put all your trust in him. Not a bit of it, not a little. You're not going to do anything to bridge the gap that he missed because of a lack of omniscience. It's done. And so your faith can be completely and entirely in him, and you can have rest. Amen? This is an example of how preaching the gospel to ourselves with the right understanding of who we are and a right understanding of who he is, it makes us appreciate and love Jesus all the more. Do you wonder how you can delight in Jesus Christ? You wonder about how, how can I be that excited about it? Meditate on the gospel. Meditate on the gospel. Rightly understanding it makes your heart grow in affection for him. And by the way, this is what you believe in order to be saved. Did you catch that? Jesus and his gospel were the whole point of the signs. This is what the signs were for. We are not to find sanctuary in the signs, the miracles, the healings. Jesus is our sanctuary. Remember, these people were believing in Jesus' name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And so the second major truth that we can learn from this passage today is that not all believing is believing. Where is our sanctuary? Not all believing is believing. This passage and the way that it's worded, uh, that the people were believing but not believing, is especially startling given the importance in this gospel of belief. Remember that John has written, chapter 20, these things are written that you might believe. In chapter 1, John the Baptist came to be a witness that all might believe. When the disciples were meeting Jesus, he said to Nathaniel, Do you believe? After Jesus turned water into wine, his disciples saw it and believed. And in John chapter 3, and we'll be getting there in a few weeks, and this uh, is our verse for the month in the bulletin, verse 16. We know this one, right? That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed, believes in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. The Apostle John wants you to believe, but be warned. He is saying here in this passage that not all believing is believing. Now, what was the nature of their believing that made their belief unbelief? We have to ask that question. And the text does give us the answer. It says they believed when they saw 
the signs? What was their hope? What was their desire? Okay, did some hope for the kingdom? The kingdom that they were hoping to come? Remember that they were under the authority of Rome and the people of Israel were uh, desperate. They were desperate for their own nation, for freedom from under uh, what they would have called the oppression of the Romans. Uh, they wanted the Messiah to come to give them that kind of liberty. Uh, were they looking for a prophet, a new affirming message from God? It had been over 400 years since they'd heard from the Lord. Uh, many surely desired healing, just relief from physical and temporary struggles. And at least a few could have just been around for the show, right? They could have been around to see the miracles themselves. How entertaining would that be? Would we not want to see that going on? Person after person after person coming to Christ and him having compassion on them and healing them, would we not want to see that? Of course we would. But if this was the nature of their belief, if this is a limit of their hope, if this is the object of their belief, their belief would only go as far as Jesus' willingness to give them their every wish. They could say that they loved Jesus when everything was going well, according to whose measurement? It would be their own, right? They could love Jesus as long as everything's going well and then turn around and blame him for everything that might go wrong. As if he existed to make their lives easy. You know, prosperous, pain-free, all that good stuff. Uh, remember that in Matthew, 8, or Matthew 16, uh, when Peter rightly identifies Jesus as the Christ... As the Messiah, Jesus tells the disciples to tell no one that he was, in fact, the Christ. He told them that. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. And we think, well, why not? It doesn't make any sense. Shouldn't they have been good missionaries and gone and told the whole world, as he would tell them to do in Acts 1 and in Matthew 28? And the answer was not yet, because Jesus knew the hearts of man and knew what kind of a Messiah the people wanted. And it wasn't the Messiah he'd come to be. He had to fulfill Isaiah 53 before he would fulfill Isaiah 60 when he would usher in the kingdom on this earth. The gospel the people wanted was not the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can still make this mistake today, can't we? We, we would just replace the desires of Israel with our own today, in our own culture, in our own context, context with our own physical needs, maybe even our own financial standing Listen to this quote from David Pallison. He says, In this gospel, this kind of false gospel, the great evils to be redressed, to be dealt with, uh, do not call for any fundamental change of direction in our own human heart. Instead, the problem lies in my sense of rejection of others, from others, in my corrosive experience of life's vanity, in my nervous sense of self-condemnation and a kind of uh, shyness or bashfulness, in the imminent threat of boredom if my music is turned off, in my fussy complaints when a long, hard road lies ahead. These are today's significant felt needs, he writes, that the gospel is bent to serve. I have to ask the question here, what, who's doing the bending of the gospel? Uh, Jesus and the church, he writes, exist to make you feel loved, significant, validated, entertained, and charged up. This gospel ameliorates or satiates or uh, appeases us of our distressing symptoms. It makes you feel better 
Uh, the logic of this, what he calls a therapeutic gospel, is a Jesus for me who meets individual desires and assuages psychic aches. Uh, this kind of self-centered false gospel has been called a Christian, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Yikes. <laughs> a Christian, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Yeah, it's interesting. Christian in, in the name, right? We're going to Jesus for this. Uh, moralistic. And we might all fall into this trap from time to time. If I'm living right, if I'm being a good boy or a good girl, then I should get what I want, right? Uh, Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. So be good. You better be good for goodness sake if you want your presents. It's ridiculous and silly and we would smile at that, but we might think that way sometimes. Uh, the idea of being therapeutic, that things would be happy or peaceful when I get, or that I would be angry and depressed when I don't. And the word I don't understand in this definition is deism. Deism is a word that means that God created everything. He set everything in motion, if you will, and then took a way big step back and let it go to do whatever it would do. Okay? But if, if we think that Jesus exists to give us goodies, then he'd better be paying attention. Because when I pray my prayer and I ask him for my thing, then he'd better be on top of it, right? That's kind of the opposite of, the extreme opposite of the idea of a deism, okay? Uh, we can't expect God to be available at our beck and call to give us whatever we ask in that kind of way with this kind of an understanding of what he exists to do. Church, this is not who God is. This gospel described here is not the gospel. This kind of faith is not saving faith. This kind of believing is not believing. Does that make sense? And this is what Jesus is seeing. Uh, they might call on Jesus' name, but this is not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus does not entrust himself to this kind of belief. He doesn't. And here are three reminders to help us to stay away. We think, okay, well, I don't believe in that kind of gospel, but here's three reminders to help us to stay away from that kind of thinking, things where we could slip and slide into that mentality. Okay, first thing, remember, signs point to things. They are not the thing. And for us, we know that signs point to Christ. The, the signs that Christ gave, they pointed to him, right? I remember our illustrations in the introduction. Uh, once our family, once the Molinos moved to Mount Pleasant, we didn't need the sign anymore. Did you find that to be true as well? How many of you need to have that sign there to know that you got home? Once we figured it out, we figured it out. We don't need the sign anymore. Uh, we began to learn and to know this place, the people, our new home. We didn't need the sign. Uh, secondly, once a new student gets acclimated at CMU, they don't need the sign on the corner anymore. They know where their classes are. They figure that out. They use signs to do that too, right? But they figure that out eventually. They, they know the professors by name. They see them in their classrooms. They study in their dorms or around campus. They don't need all the signs anymore once they've learned their way around. And once you come to church here, you don't really need the sign anymore. How many of you longtime members almost passed by the church house this morning had it not been for the sign? How many of you came up Isabella Road from the south and still today have not yet seen the sign? Right? Once you are here and once you know where we are, you don't need the sign anymore. It pointed you to where you wanted to go and it served its purpose. 
Those signs pointed you to where you needed to go. And once you got there, you experienced, you learned, you knew what was really there. And and ultimately, it was the people that you needed to join together with to accomplish the goal, the task that you needed to network with or whatever was needed to be done. And so even, think about this now, even if miracles are for today, and, and certainly God is able to do miracles today, what's their purpose? It would make sense that they are the same thing that they always have been. It's supposed to point people to Jesus. It's a sign. Also remember this. This is the second thing. Seeing signs, I'm going to put that in quotes, seeing signs does not mean that you have God's favor and blessing necessarily. And that might be a tough one for us. We've got to think through that one. Seeing signs does not mean that you necessarily have God's favor and blessing. The people in this passage who believed but did not believe, they saw the signs. They were part of the event. Many of them would have received the miracles. And they knew Jesus was special, but they did not have him. They were not saved. They were not following Christ. Think about Psalm 73. Asaph was so frustrated because he was trying to follow God and all these other people weren't and they were getting the good life. And he wasn't. The people that were getting the good life were people who were rejecting God. And Asaph said, foul, not fair. Now remember the Egyptians and their miracles. Those guys guys turned their rods into snakes too, didn't they? How'd they do that? Was God favoring them? No. Remember the events of the end times. When you read through Revelation, the Antichrist is going to do some pretty ridiculous things. Some pretty miraculous things. And the world, it says, is going to flock to him. What did Israel want? They wanted their independence. They wanted peace. They wanted the Messiah to bring these. What's the Antichrist promising to do for the nation of Israel? All that stuff. And they're going to fall headlong in love with him. So the Bible tells us. Uh, remember the abilities of the one or those who we are warring against in Ephesians 6. Satan is alive. There is demonic stuff going on. Just because we see something that seems supernatural, does that mean that God is working in a powerful and positive way there? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. If we put all our hope and our faith in signs and wonders, even if we try to do it in Jesus' name, we may get some signs and wonders and have nothing of Jesus. Wouldn't our enemy love that more than anything else? Uh, isn't that part of his plan? So we've got to beware. We've got to watch out for this. God forbid that we would allow a temporary restoration of whatever it is that we might think we need and have to have in this world, prevent us from truly knowing and loving Jesus. God forbid that we trade the eternal for the temporary. God forbid that we would value things in that way. And why? Because God is greater than miracles. Jesus is better than miracles. Think about God speaking the universe into existence. We still have not figured out all that there is in the universe, both in the expanse of it and even in our own world. We're still discovering things on our own planet, right? 
But God spoke that into existence. What's more impressive, the universe or its creator? (laughs) Let's not get distracted by the things that we see right in front of our eyes when what it points us to is something far greater. Our God. Jesus is better than miracles. Listen to this from Philippians 3. And remember, Paul's writing this. And Paul wrote these, many of these epistles from prison. And he says in verse 7 in Philippians 3, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered. Did Paul suffer? He says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things on this earth, right? But it says that he counts them as rubbish. And you know the word that is translated rubbish in English there. It doesn't mean trash in your trash can. It's referring specifically to excrement. They just didn't want to use such a colorful term. But that is exactly what that is. That's what he counts the things of this world as compared to knowing Christ. And he says that in order, it was worth it all, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's believing that is believing. That is the gospel. That is faith. Church, miracles and wonders are nice. But they're just signs. They're just signs. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Now, is it amazing if we hear of a person who has cancer and they go to the doctor and there's nothing there? Is that a great thing? that person? Do we want to be happy about that and rejoice with them? And Yeah, absolutely. Is it evil and wrong to pray that that might happen? No. No. <laughs> but why should we want that to happen? It's pretty cool to not be sick anymore. I spoke with some of you even before the service. It's even cooler to be with Jesus. It's even cooler to be with Jesus. And if somebody gets cancer and God heals them, did they heal them because the best thing that could ever happen to them is to not have cancer anymore? Or is the best thing that could happen to them and the people around them to know that there's a God who's bigger than that? And so those are opportunities to point people to Jesus. That's just a little bit of the temporal pointing us to the eternal. A little bit of our physical maladies reminding us that we have a Savior and that our healing that Christ died for was not our broken legs or anything like that. We are dead in our trespasses and sins and he makes us alive in Christ. That's what we need. That's what we need. Miracles are nice, but Jesus is better. Let's make sure our eyes aren't fixed on or enchanted by all the stuff of this world and instead fix them, fix our eyes on our Savior. May we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength.
Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much for your love. And Lord, um, often we might get uh, distracted into thinking that we need to make sure that you're loving us enough or the right way. We might even be angry that you don't do something we ask you to do. God, forgive us. You have given us uh, more than we even understand and know. And things that are beyond our comprehension. So God, help us. Help us to keep our minds, our hearts fixed on the truth of the gospel, on your goodness to us. Lord, help us to honor you with our lives as we seek to do what you've made us to do. You did a miracle in our hearts to make us new creatures in Christ. God, may we use that to point people, to point others to Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.